welcome to episode 320 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Top of the show question. Most important thing we'll ask this entire episode, because we are in that season of Christmas. What in your mind is the best screen version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm pretty partial to the Muppets' Christmas Carol. How, how dare you, sir? But uh, there's a new version that's out actually on Apple yes. TV with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell that I'm I'm excited to actually look at. So we'll see how that Interesting. goes. Yeah. That's why I asked, but you also took mine. Again, I know some, many perhaps will quibble with us. They'll say they're, they're throwing their devices at the wall and screaming, you know, George C. Scott. But I, I mean, that's classic, but nothing beats Rizzo the Rat I know. and Gonzo. It's just so hard to top that. When I think of Tiny Tim, I think of a tiny frog. It's <laughs> just what it is. Uh, also, uh, Scrooged with Bill Murray is pretty good, too. Yeah, see, I, I feel like you've got to thread this needle of some fidelity to the classic while getting some humor in there. Yeah. And so I, that's a little bit too much for me, but I, that's a fair point. I think that's a good one as well. Well, I thought this would be a lot more drama. We'd have a really great <laughs> opening gamut of wonderful and robust debates about the finer points and nuances of humor and serious storytelling and the spiritual nature of the story and all that good stuff. But that's, it's all done already. <laughs> We're just like, yeah, we both agree. It's more on the same page. Yeah. I, it, I just love how it, you have like this serious Shakespearean actor treating it like a Shakespeare play yes. with yes. a bunch of Muppets. That's the Thank best you. part of the movie. Thank you. We're, but this is the worst podcasting ever because it's all true. I'm doing is saying that's exactly what I want to talk about. <laughs> and there's nothing to talk about because we're both in full agreement, which probably will not necessarily happen on this particular episode because we're continuing, of course, our series about church and culture. And we're getting into this idea of two kingdoms. And that's all I'm going to say, because I don't even want to make it more meta than it might become or already is. Two kingdoms are coming. We're talking about the church. We're talking about the law. We're talking about spiritual government and obligations, as it were. So if that hasn't whet your appetite, then just wait, because we've got some affirmations and denials coming. And by that, you'll just be starving to hear us actually talk about something that has some great theological depth. So let's go into affirmations and denials. And I'm going to say, let's go negative first so we can Ooh. end on this nice, upbeat feeling. All right. Uh, well, for those people who've been, I don't know, talking to me over the last couple of weeks in any capacity, know that I'm a huge World Cup soccer fan. So I'm uh. just I'm just denying uh, my poor American team just getting absolutely spanked by Netherlands. <laughs> um, to be fair, they're a very green team. They actually did quite well for it being most of their first uh, first showing in the World Cup. So I'm really hopeful for 2026 when the World Cup is actually in, in Boston. So I'm hoping right. I may actually get to go to a live World Cup match would be pretty sweet. Uh, I'll, I'll get a little bit of hooligan on and uh, it'll be a good time. But yeah, it was it was a it was a good run. The uh, the match against Iran was a, a phenomenal match to watch. And then they played like a bunch of 16 year old boys against Netherlands. So that's OK. 
I, I'm just a little disappointed. I was hoping we'd at least get to the next uh, the next round, but next next time. I'm, I'm by no means a soccer expert. I've just like many Americans enjoying almost just by osmosis or by tangent all the stuff that's happening in the World Cup. So from what I understand, it was a pretty good showing from the U.S. And there's a lot there that showed promise for the future. So that's really cool because what a wonderful way to identify with brothers and sisters all over the globe because soccer is very much probably the one predominant universal game. So it's really lovely to see the U.S. contend in some ways and have a strong showing. And I want to then I'm going to like piggyback or like take in your affirmation, digest it and then spit it back out as another affirmation towards you, which was you should tell people, well, let me say this. I want to affirm that as an American, you were like, I am rooting for the USA (laughs) because I have U.S. citizenship. Like, I just love that you are you just embrace the patriotism, no matter what our chances were. You're like, listen, this is my country and I want to root for my people in this vast showing of athletic display across all these different countries and nationalities. And to that end, I feel like you should, you should tell people like how, (laughs) why I'm affirming this because like your display of great patriotism and great joy was actually reported on. It's funny. I've become, so I'm not a soccer expert by any means. I played soccer in high school and uh, a little bit of like casual, I don't know, intramural soccer in college but I, I was at the World Cup match at a local pub. Uh, actually, you and I have recorded an episode of the show at that pub. And actually correct. Um, there was a reporter there. And apparently I was enthusiastic enough to draw the camera. And I got to talking to the reporter afterwards. And I just commented to her that I, I, I refused to watch the World Cup last time around because the, the men's team didn't make it in. And so they, they quoted me in the newspaper. So now apparently I'm the expert uh, in soccer in my tiny little town of Keene, New Hampshire. <laughs> I go into the library and they were the, the lady at the library was like, so do we have any chance uh, of winning against Denmark? And I was like, I, I don't know if we have a chance against winning against Denmark, but we're not playing Denmark. And then she's like, well, what about Belgium? I was like, we're also not playing Belgium. So, yeah, it's good. And you're right. I think that the men's team, this is like the most positive denial I've ever had. Uh, The men's team did very well for a very, very green team. Uh, There was only one player on the World Cup team that had ever been in the World Cup before. Um, Most of them are very young. We were the youngest uh, average age of any team in the World Cup, I think, in history, but for sure in this tournament. So, yeah, they did a good job. Um, The fact that we didn't have a loss in the first um, round was or the first um, group play was pretty impressive. Uh, even England drew against us, which was really unexpected. So, yeah, it was good. And if you're not a soccer fan, it's hard to watch soccer and understand and appreciate it. But when you played soccer and you kind of understand how the matches are played, it's it's very much like a big active chess game is kind of what's going on. You can see the plays being set up and you have to kind of position things. So it was a good time. I had, I had a lot of fun and uh, I was in the newspaper, which is is always fun to be in the newspaper. It was pretty well, maybe not always fun, but in this case, <laughs> it's true. It was definitely, definitely yes. fun. And I'd say if anybody's like, not is like, oh my gosh, this has turned into the reform soccer cast. 
Uh, that's okay. Hang with us for just a minute because I would just piggyback that by saying, even if you're not into soccer, this is a game that I think you have to see the joy of others mm-hmm. in some ways to really kind of be drawn in. And to that end, I don't know if it's even possible to find this, but people should go out and try to find this picture of you. <laughs> it might be the most unbridled joy I've ever seen on your face in like the most candid picture. It's an amazing picture. And yeah, it's a good the, picture. The camera is like looking through a crowd that's obviously cheering at a goal. Yeah. I presume it's a goal. And your face is in this perfect expression of jubilance. So it's it was a good time. awesome. What's really yeah, it's really what's great. Really fun. If you are interested in watching soccer, but you're not quite sure about it and you're like, oh man, two hour games, that's a long time. Find someone who really enjoys watching soccer and go watch soccer with them because right you'll actually learn you'll learn the game by by observing their reactions to it. So in this photo, actually, immediately to my left is a, f- a friend of mine who's not a soccer fan, and he just came to hang out. And you can see he's just excited as everyone else is. Like, you wouldn't be able to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, there's the guy that doesn't like soccer. Um, and, he, you know, you learn, you learn. And it's funny because there's parts of the game where, like, the ball is down, in this case, Iran's, on Iran's side. The ball is down in Iran's side. And the un, uninitiated might think, oh, we're going to get a goal. And like, nobody's reacting. Nobody's really, really paying attention because yeah, the ball's down there, but the, the positioning is all wrong. There's nothing going on. And then a few minutes later, the ball's in basically the same spot, but everybody's starting to get excited. You just pick that up and you learn it and you sort of learn to react with the crowd. So if you are interested in World Cup soccer, if you want to watch World Cup soccer, I guarantee you your local sports bar is probably playing it. You'd be surprised um, because you're probably like, nobody likes soccer in my area. They're going to play the matches. Uh, Go down and watch it. It's a lot of fun. Have a good beer. Get some good pub food. Strike up a conversation with somebody else. That's the other fun thing about going to watch a match like this in public is – in like New England, you don't just strike up a conversation with stranger. That's just not the culture. But at the World Cup match, everybody's there for the same reason. So everybody is just right. talking about it. Some random guy just sat down at our table because it was a good spot to watch the game. And we struck up a conversation. So it was a lot of fun. And and it only comes around every four years. Um, it's exciting. And yeah, I had a good time. You're selling it well. I lost my voice entirely. I, I literally could not talk the next day, partially because I had laryngitis from having a cold, but then also I just screamed my brains out for the whole match. So it's a good yeah, time. Well, again, if that picture is any indication, it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing because yes. you're so jubilant in this picture. And so like, it's not like you're an, you're not a jubilant person, but <laughs> this amount of radiant joy, I'm trying to think of other words and they're all failing me right now. It's just so present. It's plastered. Yes. It's such a unique expression. I just absolutely <laughs> loved it. So somebody go out there and find it. It's got to be out there somewhere. It's true. What about you? What are you denying? That was the most positive denial for the entire It was, entire but show. I like that. I like that because it was kind of a bit like, hey, listen, the men's US soccer team had some expectations and maybe even if they were low, they exceeded them all, which is all I can hope for in our yeah. podcast. So my denial is something where I'm just instituting like this new thing I've unilaterally decided for this time of year, and I'm just calling it my denial advent calendar. And to be clear, <laughs> it's I'm not de- denying advent or advent calendars. This is more of like this time of year. Now I just want to raise my fist and say a couple of things that I want to deny <laughs> and we'll just put it in calendar form. So everybody may have remembered, or maybe some didn't, that last week I denied this kind of casual singing around this time of year. So this time, this week, if you to open up today, 
in your calendar, what you're going to find is me denying against the idea that Christmas is an appeal when it's really an announcement. And I just think there's so much around Christmas we're trying to appeal to others, whether yeah. it's like giving or receiving or the holiday spirit. And we get all wrapped up in this idea that we somehow have to make it relevant. We have to put Christ into Christmas again with the appeal to the culture to somehow they can see the value of Christ when it's just flat out an announcement. And, and it's just a great reminder to me that we come to the scriptures and to the incarnation. We're looking through this grand narrative, this really big arc of this redemptive story. And so, of course, in the Old Testament, we have Christ established and prophesied. At least he's made clear that he's coming to us. And then when we get to the New Testament, he's being introduced to us in the epistles. He's being explained to us in Revelation. We're seeing that we, we should expect him because he's coming again. And it's just better and easier to understand this time of year as an announcement. Yeah. So much more crystal and cogent. And then also just gets to the main thing, which is the whole point of this is to proclaim, to literally announce that the Savior has come. So I'm denying against Christmas and all its trappings as an appeal and instead, we should get back to making it an announcement. Yeah, that's some really good law gospel distinction right there. Like, I, like <laughs> I'm as jubilant as I was when, when when they scored that goal. Like, I'm just that's just it's just good stuff. Yeah, I mean, the angel says, "Behold, I bring you good news of great joy." Yeah, that will be for all the people upon whom God's pleasure dwells. I mean, that's a rough paraphrase, but like the it. fact is, like, it's. It's good news being brought to the people whom God has already elected for salvation for all right. eternity. Uh, it, there's no, there's no um, appeal or a law given in that announcement. It's, it's all about what Christ is doing and has done for you. So, yeah, let's let's instead of talking about putting the Christ, putting Christ back in Christmas, let's talk about like putting the gospel back in Christmas. Yeah, I mean, right I know on. that's kind of one and the same thing, but. You're right. So much, even about like the secular iterations of Christmas, which is everywhere this time of year, even so much of that is just, it's just a different law, right? It's, right. you got to buy the perfect gift. You got to, you got to give to the right charity. You have to make sure that you're spending time with your family. Like all of those things are good things to do and you should do those things, but that's not really what Christmas is about. It's not about the obligations you have. It's about the generosity of, of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, right on. That's really good. Man, you're making it even better than what I said. Like, I, I, there is a weirdness to me in that when we come to this idea of Christmas that has like an appeal flavor to it. It's like, not just like you're saying, we have to do the right things, have the right gatherings, get the right gifts, spend the right time with people, do the right things to make sure that we're in the best mood possible so that we're really taking advantage of the season. All that stuff happens. But it's just so, so many things are vying for attention and time. That's true all the time. But yeah. again, it's this vying for your focus and what you're supposed to be focusing on and how, what you're supposed to be slowing down or you're supposed to be speeding up. And it just struck me this week in particular, as I was meditating on that, that here comes the Christ who actually doesn't vie for any of those things. He yeah. comes in the announcement as the conqueror, as the one who comes to save his people from his sin, from their sins. So yeah, he just doesn't do any of that. He already comes as the one who he doesn't need appeasement. He doesn't need an appeal. And he comes in a way that exactly, I would say, baffles those who would say, well, his brand is really weak. His marketing wasn't right there, of course. But that's because he comes already as the conquering king. So I just love that. There's so much freedom for me to sit into that idea as opposed to getting caught up in appeals. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, even even when the angels give the 
shepherds like a, a direction of some sort. Like it's still right. It's still go and see. Like come and see. Yes. It's not like go and do. It's just go and see. Like go and receive what God is doing. Um, yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Right. We're, we're yeah. like we're really confused about what denials are this week because <laughs> it's like I'm going to deny everything I hate about this thing that I love. Well, let's do this in a chiastic structure. You like that? I'll I'll go. rock on with a little bit of an affirmation because it dovetails with my denial, believe it or not. So, I it's so nice to know sometimes that you know, as we speak, our voices just go into the ether that at least somebody is listening. It's nice to have others join us. And all I can presume is that the recording label Solid State Records heard my affirmation from last week, which as you recall was about music. And it was what I think is one of the most epically great incarnation hymns of the modern era called Lowborn by Wolves at the Gate. Their recording uh, label just this week, this is like record breaking news. Just this week, released their Christmas album with all their songs. Nice. So if you're looking for some Wolves at the Gate songs, they're, they're all actually put them together. This isn't all new music, but the album is called Lowborn. And it has what I think could be the most underrated, underappreciated Christmas hymn slash care of all time. And that is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. They have a version of that, which is excellent. So you're going to want to go check that out. And because that's basically kind of like, I would say half affirmation, because I'm really just stealing from last week, I'm going to give you something that you're going to want to do while you're listening to this album and you're relaxing. And that is, if you are so inclined to make yourself a beverage, I'm going to give you a new beverage that oh, you man. ought to make. And this is one we've been enjoying in my house. Here's what you do. First, take about three ounces of cranberry juice. Get the fruit out of there, except for the cranberry. Leave the other fruit at home. You got to just get, get straight cranberry juice. Three ounces cranberry juice, three ounces of apple cider, and then two ounces of fireball whiskey. This thing is like an amazing fall slash holiday drink. And because it's tart and you got a little bit of the cinnamon from the whiskey, and then you've got whiskey, I'm calling this the Zwingli. Nice. Did you invent this on your own or did your wife? No, no, no. I think this goes by a couple of different names. We've been kind of trying to get this the taste right, at least for me. And of course, it's just those three ingredients. I love yeah. it. This is a low-bow drink. You're, you might have noticed you're not listening to Distilled Theology. So <laughs> there's not a lot of mixing here. There's no fanciness. It's just three things that kind of smack of fall and Christmas. And I've only just discovered Fireball Whiskey. So if you're so inclined in good conscience to enjoy a drink like this, I think it's the perfect compliment to whatever you're doing this holiday season as you are embracing both law and gospel and thinking about the announcement being greater than the appeal. So you should try it. Don't worry. You will try this. I will oh, come. I'm sure. Yeah. I will come to you and I will make you one and you will be like, my goodness, Zwingli. <laughs> I would think you can, you can adjust those ratios too to suit your needs. So if you're looking for something maybe a little sweeter, maybe we'll call exactly. it like, we'll call it like the sweet doctor, the Richard Sibbs. Maybe up the apple Sweet cider dropper. a little bit. Maybe you want something a little tartar instead, a little bit more tart. You call it the Luther. We, we, we're onto something here. I'm telling you, I toyed with all those names. You you were, again, this is horrible podcast. <laughs> People won't believe that we had this much agreement before we even spoke about this. Yes. But I ended up with Zwingli because it's got that, first of all, I mean, he was a tart dude yeah. for sure, right? Like So good, strong theology, amazing commitment to God this ferocious desire to see him worshiped properly. Right. 
Uh, I'm, I'm definitely stretching this strength metaphor and way too far. But, and a broadsword. <laughs> yes. A bro- Let's not forget that. So you actually mix this drink with a broadsword. Yes. That's part of the reason why it's called a swingly. But he was tart. And so this is a little bit sweet because you got the apple cider. But that cinnamon in the whiskey and the tartness, it's it's the kind of thing that makes you pucker a little bit, yeah. which I presume people did when <laughs> Zwingli came in with the broadsword to bust up all the icons. I like to think right? that he would he walked up into the pulpit and like like leaned the sword up against the pulpit and like every <laughs> once in a while there'd be some kid like talking in the back and he'd just like rest his hand on the hilt. <laughs> he wouldn't say anything. I also we have to what we have to do at Christmas. I mean, midwinter, no reason uh, celebration with this is test how it goes with sausages. That'll oh, complete excellent. the whole the whole metaphor. Excellent. It's a wonderful pairing. So I'm hoping people will get out there and, and jump on this bandwagon with me. Like you said, it's a great idea. You can just kind of go with the mixing to taste, but it's just three three two ratio, which is really great. Or if you're lazy like me, you just get you go to your liquor store. And you get a bucket of the tiny little bottles of <laughs> Fireball Whiskey. You just open one of those bad boys up and pour it nice. in and mix everything up. And uh, it's, again, people hear whiskey and might get worried. This is not high-proof whiskey, by the way. This is, again, like like your undefined <laughs> palate whiskey because that's what I'm drinking. So This is like you take Listerine and you put some like cinnamon <laughs> ball, like Red Hots in it. And you just let it like simmer for a little while and that's how do they you make, like red hot candy yeah that's how they make uh, yeah like red hots like fire yeah, i mean do, yeah. you, do you like that stuff though i'm not a huge fan but i feel like if you if you soaked some red hots in some vodka to make some red hot whiskey which is basically what fireball is you'd probably yeah, be fine listen you're gonna you're gonna love this <laughs> you're gonna love it so all right so that's enough affirming from me so we're going chiastically here what are you affirming so this is an oldie but a goodie this is kind of a popcorn uh, coconut oil affirmation although I've never I don't think I've ever affirmed this before I know Jesse has I'm affirming Nate Bargatze so just, <laughs> oh, yes just for fun uh, before I came in to record we pulled up a little bit of a show of his called The Greatest Average American, which was uh, <laughs> Nate Bargatze is a, is a, I mean, I don't think he's an explicitly, I think he's a Christian guy. I don't think he's an explicitly Christian comic. Um, I, you know, I don't think that he is trying necessarily to be family friendly, but I think just his personality and his background, you don't hear a lot of like cussing and, and dirty jokes and stuff from him. Right. It's a lot of just routine low-key observational humor (laughs) and this uh this was kind of like his first big show that was like produced and broadcast after covid hit and it's actually quite strange to sort of think about the weirdness of 2020 uh in light of this comedy show so like the first thing that you see is like you see that people are sitting outside in los angeles wearing masks which is weird and then he's making a lot of jokes about like being stuck indoors and stuff and it's strange to think that just in two short years like the longest two years of most of our lives i think uh, how different the world is um you know we were very pro mask and i think there are probably still some instances and contexts where masks might be appropriate for example i work at a hospital and we have various reasons for keeping our mask uh, policies in place um but I just think it's it's interesting and funny to watch. So check it out. 
Um, it's safe as far as I can remember to watch with the kids. It's it's a, a relatively clean show. Some of the humor is probably over their head, but he's also right. one of those comics that his delivery is just so deadpan and funny that you Amazing. you don't even necessarily need to understand the joke to think it's funny. Like just the way that he delivers the jokes are 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 good. So check it out, Nate Bargatze, the greatest average American. Um, he's got a number of specials. So just sit down and watch them all. They're all good, but this one is is particularly funny. All the specials on Netflix are good. He is one of the few comics where one I feel you can enjoy him without feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you're listening to something and you're laughing, but you're thinking, I shouldn't be laughing at yeah. this. It's just not helpful or healthy. You don't have any of that guilt. At least I don't with him. It is clean. And he just tells really funny stories. Yes. Like funny things happen to him. And it's really great when somebody can take a story that's true. And so any of the Netflix specials are really great. They're always, all of them contain at least one story that's of great humor and he's one of the few that I can go back and watch. Yeah. I'll rewatch some of the clips on Netflix because they just make me laugh. Yeah. And he's a family man. Like a lot of his jokes yes. are about his, you know, his daughter and his wife and um you know he has kind of, the one thing that I don't love is he's got kind of like the typical kind of like comic my wife and I don't get along and we fight a lot that I'm sure probably right. isn't true. Like I'm sure that right. it's just just goofy spouse humor. But um, I think he's, you know, I think when you listen to his podcast, you can tell he's got, I, I don't, don't particularly like his podcast. It's, it's really long and it's not as funny as his stuff. But when you listen to it, you can tell he's got at least a Christian background of some sort. Um, I don't know if he is a Christian now, but he, it's affected his life and his outlook on things enough that it comes through even in the way that he talks about his life and in his comedy. And I just... He's just a funny, clean comic kind of guy that doesn't make a lot of dirty jokes, and um, it's it's worth watching. And we we live in a culture now where that is increasingly rare to find. Right. So I like to make sure that I I share it with people and I enjoy it when I I find it. Yeah, here's what everybody should do: stop listening now. Go to your nearest computer or device where you can get YouTube and go look up his bits on why his name doesn't match on his ID and his plane ticket. Yes. Just watch that. It's gold. And the delivery is just epically good. It's so good. And the humor is so clever. I've always thought that it's clean humor, creative storytelling, like really honing your craft to get like such good nuance in the way that you say something, but also even the very words that you're choosing to express something. Cause you can say two things with different language and one will be very funny it's all happens in this little bit of him explaining what happened to him when the name on his ID did not match the name on the ticket when he went to go make a flight. Yeah. And and he's, it's like effortless. Like you can, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of work behind being a comic, but he looks, it seems so effortless. And the one thing I love about this, this special particularly is I won't spoil the, the humor of it. Um, but it's outdoors in Los Angeles. And so there's lots of like air traffic and you can <laughs> tell, you can tell that he wasn't really, wasn't really prepared for it. It wasn't right. like he wrote jokes specifically to address it, but he just rolls with it in like a totally organic, natural way. And it, it just, it really shows where this is, I mean, we're kind of like dipping into our topic here. It just really shows like God's common grace in the idea of humor and the fact that like, Words can be strung together and delivered in a way that touches our emotions in a particular way that makes right. us laugh and brings out joy. Um, really is just something to behold. So yeah, it that's is. my affirmation. 
and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, that was that's really strong, and I'm actually impressed that you basically got us more than like halfway with the common grace thing into the two kingdom theological perspective, what we're going to talk about here. But here's the thing. I'm going to do it. Watch me do this with, you ready for this? I'm going to do this with Nate Bargatze oh, man. in like two easy steps. So Nate Bargatze is a comic who we recommended before. Several years ago, right before COVID, I purchased as a gift, a surprise, tickets to go see Mar- 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 Nate Bar- Bargatze. <laughs> man, with my wife, all of those, all those uh, like fricatives really just messed me up there yeah. for a second. So I went to, I got these tickets and then um, COVID shut a lot of things down. So the events got postponed several times. And then finally it opened up. We were very excited to go. And at that time, you recall speaking of the world being slightly crazy, different rules, different regulations about people gathering together because we we're still very much in the midst of the pandemic, but we were trying as best we could for lots of reasons to open back up. So there was mask policies and there was vaccination policies and there were all this other stuff. Well, to make a long story very long, it turns out that the theater was vouchsafe with making the, sorry, not the theater that we were going to see. It was actually, I think Nate Bargetsy himself or his team had the final say as to what would be allowed or what would be the circumstances of his particular event. And they said no masks. And because we were vulnerable in many different ways, we were going to see people who were going to be vulnerable. We just let the tickets go. We never saw him. We actually couldn't find oh, man. You know, anybody to, to take the tickets. Um, it was too bad. And so here we are at Two Kingdoms Theology. Here's why. Because, <laughs> well, like you said already, not just this idea of common grace, but all of some things that we've actually just recently lived through, which it really, the big elephant on this is COVID yeah. and both governmental restrictions and restrictions that apply to churches. All of these things, all of the questions that came out of that were really about how our spiritual obligations intersect with other aspects of life in this world Yes, and of what it means to obey God as well as human authorities and what kind of responsibilities God entrusts to the different institutions through which we structure our Christian lives. So I'm going to say it this way. This idea of two kingdoms theology talking through this is really, in my mind, a question of macro prudential spiritual regulation. That's really what we're talking about. That's the boring way to say it. Probably. Probably that's not like the way you drop it at a party. But we're trying to get to this idea of what does it mean then to live in this world and to make practical decisions? And we do have to get meta here because I want to have you start then with what you kind of teased out. You kind of tease there's this common grace. So let's like start there, which is of course at the beginning with a definition so we can understand why you said what you did about common grace and then why I said this is also about how we understand and live our lives according to some kind of sense of macro spiritual regulation, spiritual regulation. Yeah. So before I do that, I just want to, there's somebody out there who is really disappointed that we did not go to from Charles Dickens to a tale of two cities to Uh, a tale of two kingdoms. So I just want to say it's there. We can only cram so many segues into one episode. So we have to make choices. Augustine Uh, as well. It's true. Slip them in the middle of that. So the the reformed uh, or the two kingdom theology, and sometimes you see it as R2K, uh, R R can either mean reformed two kingdoms or radical two kingdoms, depending on who is trying to apply the label. I prefer just to call it two kingdom theology because I think uh, when we start to granulated even further, it it becomes less and less useful. Two kingdom theology, roughly speaking, is the idea that God 
is sovereign over all things, right? No, nobody who holds to a two kingdom theology that I'm aware of um, is an open theist or or believes that God is somehow not sovereign. Certainly none of the reformed thinkers uh, like Michael Horton or David Van Drunen uh, or, or Scott Clark, who would hold to a two kingdom theology, none of them would deny that God is the ruler over all things. Right. But he rules over different aspects or parts of reality in different ways. And so the primary kingdoms, the two kingdoms um, that God rules over are the secular kingdom or the the kingdom of the world, right? To sort of take Augustine's or Augustine's uh, language, the city of man, or he rules over the spiritual world or the city of God. And and primarily um, in its reformed iteration, although Lutheranism has a two kingdom theology. We're going to focus on the reformed version in reformed theology. This basically ends up being the church as the spiritual world, the spiritual authority, the spiritual realm, the spiritual sphere is sometimes called. And then there's the civil sphere and that's primarily ruled over by the, the government. And so reformed or uh, two kingdom theology is a model which in which we understand that God rules over these two spheres. He rules over the world through these two kingdoms uh, in distinct ways, and that those right. two kingdoms relate to each other in various ways. And depending on who you're asking with, with a two-kingdom theology, there's not uniformity. There's no confessional statement that brings about some sort of uniformity on this. Um, depending on who you ask, there's different kinds and different levels of involvement between those two kingdoms. That's the rough definition. And of course, we'll get into, you know, pros and cons and and where this is strong and where it's weak as we go through the episode. Yeah, I like that. That's a really good start. I think it's helpful for people to hear that this isn't kind of like a made up topic to superimposed on the scriptures to just be useful for intellectual debate or classification. I think the approach is essentially built on the two ideas you talked about. There is like a natural law and a clear distinction between redemptive and non-redemptive social spheres. So the first idea is built on passages like Romans two, where we talk about the fact that the law is somehow written in all the heights of men. We have to contend with that passage. What does it mean? Because that's very explicit language. We understand what laws are. And here we have the apostle Paul saying to us, they are innate to some degree or they're transcribed. God himself has literally put them and planted them, written them down. And so there's an assumption that moral norms are inscribed on the hearts of all men. I think C.S. Lewis even touches on this to a great degree in like mere Christianity. So those norms are the basis for common society of which both believers and unbelievers are members. And those normal, those like moral norms, we're not saying like they're self-ific in any way, right? Like that's distinctly... I would say like cogently exemplified and articulated in the scriptures in the, in that sense. But we can say that they do provide for human peace, even among the unregenerate. And right. that's kind of what we're saying is like, there's this great common grace. Like, so it's a straw man argument for somebody to say like, well, there, you know, how can people do good things? Well, that's not really what we're saying. Of course, like even all good is glittering sin from that perspective. Right. However, is there peace among people who are unbelievers uh, because God is good and he inscribes these laws, that sense of peace, I believe, comes from this two kingdom view, or at least let me say it this way, is articulated in a part of this two kingdom group. That's why it's, it's helpful to like understand that. Yeah. So the general civic realm, though, is like not all that exists, like you said. So there's also this other salvific revelation that comes like beyond the common natural law. 
And so two kingdom kind of advocates sharply some distinguishment between believers and unbelievers and also between like ecclesiastical government and the civic government, right? Like believers are governed, but not just by the natural law. You know, we understand that there's a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, his person, and his works. So I think like whether you're looking at Augustine and his famous use of this with like the two cities, there is kind of like a dual membership that the Christian has. And we're trying to get to, okay, so what does that mean then? Like, how do we actually function in a world where we can see that God, of course, has inscribed some of these laws, and yet the unbeliever has no access, as it were, to the dimension that has the salvific reality, and yet the Christian, of course, lives in both of them. Right. And so what does that have to do with all of life? Yeah, and so that I think that's really an important element of that. So the Christian is, it's not to say that there is, there's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom of the right. church. There's, there's the civil realm and there's the, you know, the spiritual realm and that Christians are only in the spiritual realm. That's a, that's a different kind of view that, that most, most would just flat out reject in terms of this, this two kingdom theology. Uh, that's really more of like an Anabaptist separatist kind of a view, not a two kingdom theology. Um, really the, the believer is governed uh, by one law but is governed in two ways in, in this model. So we should get into some of the nitty gritty, I think. So Let's someone like a David Van Drunen or Michael Horton um, would argue more or less that, uh, and I, I think there are elements of this that fall right in line with the Westminster Confession. We'll get into criticisms right. as we get there, but would argue more or less that there are, um, that the, the light of nature, right? We talked about this when we talked about Revelation, that there are certain truths that are available to all men um, that they're able to apprehend because of their their being made in the image of God, which persists after the fall. And although they apprehend it uh, in a fallen way, there are still truths that are apprehended by all men that are accessible. The, the language that the confessions use is the light of nature or the, the Heidelberg. Um, it's either Heidelberg or the Belgic. I don't remember off the top of my head. One of them talks about how God has these two books. There's the book of nature and there's the book of of the Bible. There's the scriptures. And so the, the moral law, when we talked about the moral law, the moral law is this fabric of the moral fabric of reality that's accessible to all people. And so a, a two kingdom theology would, would most of the time say that the civil government is when they're legislating right, when they're governing right, they're, they're receiving and appropriating and properly understanding the moral fabric of reality. And the most obvious example would be when a, when a government, and this is nearly universal, recognizes that murder is wrong and punishes right. those who murder, especially when it punishes those who murder with the death penalty, they're actually receiving revelation from God through the light of right. nature, and they're governing according to that. And that's why I say that the Christian is governed by one moral law, but depending on which of those kingdoms they're interacting in at a given time, they're governed differently by those laws. And that's really, really key because the most I think the most common misrepresentation of this view that I've seen is that the the you know the the civil kingdom is is governed by common sense. Well, that's not really that's not really the perspective that's being put forward. They would say that the civil the civil realm, God's temporal rule over the temporal civil realm, is by the light of nature that's appropriated and understood by 
common grace by the image of God in man. The same reason that a little kid knows that lying is wrong and hides it when he lies, that same instinct and conscience, although fallen and seared and at times um, suppresses the truth, suppresses the moral truth in unrighteousness, right? That's just Romans 1 still recognizes that moral truth and government, righteous government, and then also secular government that is not righteous is compelled by God to govern according to those norms. Where where it goes uh, the other direction then is that the church is governing its members in a spiritual sense by that same law, but they're doing so by means of special revelation. So so there's there's one revelation Revealed in two different ways. There's and the, the the Lutherans would talk about the right and the left hand kingdom, right? It's it's God's it's God's kingdom, but He governs it differently depending on kind of the left hand kingdom and the right hand kingdom, which is similar in concept to this civil versus spiritual realm that we're talking about. Jess is just staring at me. <laughs> no, sorry, there was a delay. Now I'm back in. <laughs> Oh, no, I, that was just dramatic pause for recording. It's this true. was all supposed to happen. Yeah, I think that there's a lot here that people hear. So on the face of this, and they think they know what it means. I've seen this misjudged in lots of ways, especially in Western culture, where people think two kingdoms means separation of church and state or right. secular and holy or profane and piety. But it's really not that. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. But I think there's a lovely dimension to this that shows the generosity and the kindness of our God, that he has these two kingdoms. And the Christian gets dual citizenship, which is to say they get the rights, the privileges of both of them, right. even though at the same time, there are some privileges that the unbelievers, the unregenerate still receive. Because I like the way you were saying it, this idea that there is an appropriation by light, that the light itself is illuminating what is good. And that goodness, of course, is inextricably, it is always connected to God. It is God himself. It is the characteristics of God, which are good, but it is still not a full revelation. I right. Mean, I, I suppose we could start saying that two kingdom theology is adventures in Romans one and two. And it's that combination of things. It is both a, a low view of anthropology, but almost so low a view that God in his kindness and his goodness gives the first kingdom to bring light where absent that it would be just anarchy and decay and complete chaos all the time. So even as we see like this time of year again, like going back to the sense of appeal, the sense, the, the intuitiveness of wanting to make an appeal is itself to me something of the first kingdom. You know, this idea of like, well, can't we, especially this time of year, peace on earth and let's right. end war and can't we all get along? That is like the first part of the kingdom. And that itself in its, I would say like distilled nature is in some ways reflective of God himself. That is that he's giving this kindness to us by helping that to rule the day, so to speak, when it is appropriately undertaken by any kind of governing agency, even if they're doing that for just to be expedient, right? That yeah. still is the kindness of God toward us. So there's a lot written on this. I would say like, cause you, you were referencing Lutherans and I, I feel like we have to I mean, I don't know if we've ever been sponsored by Lutherans specifically, but it seems like we are sometimes because sometimes, we have to give yeah. a certain number of Lutheran references. But if we're looking for something that's like a little bit heady, but I think it's very interesting and you'll find some challenging ideas in this, some of which I think is right on the mark. Some of it is a little bit off center, but nonetheless, really good reading. And it's always good to read above your head and beyond your own perspective. So John Witt Jr., Law and Protestantism, 
the legal teachings of the Lutheran Reformation. So there's the the Lutheran reference. But uh, he has a particular good quote on this, I think is like helpful in summarizing a lot of what we've said so far. First, this idea that the two kingdom rule, there are like these spheres, and I would say like they are separate and they don't overlap. However, Christians as members of both kingdoms, they operate fully under the laws of each. So as a member of the heavenly kingdom, a Christian submits to the word of God. As a member of the earthly kingdom, wherever God is, has put you, he submits to human laws. Again, that's that's mostly full stop. Of course, I think we've talked about before what it means to have like a proper push against the civil magistrate. And that's a little bit outside the scope of what I'm mentioning here. But this is what John Witt summarizes or how he summarizes the idea of two kingdoms. And I think this is really good. He writes, quote, the earthly kingdom is distorted by sin and governed by the law. The heavenly kingdom is renewed by grace and guided by the gospel. A Christian is citizen of both kingdoms at once and invariably comes under the distinction and distinctive government of each. As a heavenly citizen, the Christian remains free in his or her conscience, called to live fully by the light of the word of God. But as an earthly citizen, the Christian is bound by law and called to obey the natural orders and offices that God has ordained and maintained for the governments of this earthly kingdom, end quote. Yeah. I love that because it is a little bit, it's this wingly all over. It's a little bit tart. It's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit feisty. It's a little bit hot. You know what I mean? Like Because yeah. I think we don't like to submit to this idea. I think that's actually what makes two kingdoms uh, so helpful and so discordant at the same time, because there are some who take this idea and they appropriate it as one to say, we ought always to fight in every situation against the government. Yeah. And there are some that would say like, we should always submit in every conceivable way to the government. And then here's this two kingdom idea of saying, why is the submission important? What, what is the essential nature of what God calls us to do by establishing both and putting the Christian in a place where they ought to submit and be subservient and yield to both. I think this is the thing that, that tests us and should test us as Christians, like in our modern day. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to make sure we, we spend at least a little bit of time. We're coming up to the end of our episode here, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the weaknesses of this view. So strengths of this view, I think um, are pretty obvious that, that we all experience the world in these two kingdoms. I think every Christian just intuitively understands that our relationship to the governing authorities of the church is different than it is to the right. relationship to the governing authorities of the civil magistrate. So we, we recognize these two realities. Uh, and I think that's a strength. I think this, the scriptures speak of these two different um, authorities, right? Romans 13, that the government has the power of the sword and that the, the power of the sword is there to punish evildoers. All of that is scriptural, where I think this this view, um, particularly as it's, and everybody who's listened to the show for any amount of time knows how much I, I'm indebted to Michael Horton and how much we love Scott Clark. Um, right. And David Van Drunen is an excellent scholar and has a lot of really good things to say. But I think one of the primary weaknesses of this view, if if transformationalism, which we talked about last week, if the weakness is this permeation of this of society with the church and this confusion and this mission creep of the church into what should not be the church's mission right right so civic transformation um social projects those kinds of things if that's the weakness and the the risk of transformationalism reformed uh, two kingdom theology, particularly in what's called R2K, the reformed iteration of this or the radical iteration of this, it hermetically seals off those two kingdoms sometimes That's true. such that some of the proponents of 
this view, um, Van Drunen specifically is who I have in mind here, would actually say that the church at most of the time should not even be speaking to what the state is doing, that the, those things are separate. Um, there was a quote that was going around a, a couple of years ago, and I haven't read the whole thing in context, but I, I think it was Van Drunen who actually said something along the lines of, of you know, Nero was was not wrong in executing justice on the Christians who were disobeying his law. I mean, that's a that's a paraphrase of what was being said. But his point was that the civil magistrate operates in this sphere and they're basically um, supreme in that sphere. That's right. a big problem. And and so as when we get to our each of our own views and Jesse and I still have not like colluded to discuss what our views are yet, <laughs> uh, you'll see that my view is is probably leans more towards the the two kingdoms view than it does the transformationalist view. But I think that this hermetically sealing off of the two kingdoms from each other, in some sense, um, almost eliminating the prophetic voice of the church in speaking to the state um, and in the, the state's role in involvement and interaction with and su sometimes supporting what the church is doing. It takes these two things and I think it loses sight of the fact that this is one law that's being executed by God through two different agencies. Right. <clears throat> and that that is a problem in my mind because that seems to me much closer to the way the scripture is doing that. The civil magistrate is God's servant. It's his, it's his deacon to reward good and to punish evil. The church is his, mad, his, his governor in a different sense uh, and his servant to do a different thing, but still to rule and to govern. When we kind of treat the church as though like, well, that's just, just exclusively about spiritual stuff. And they're off in their corner. And, you know, it's, it's, Particularly associated, if theonomy and, and reconstructionism is associated with postmillennialism, two kingdoms theology is really closely associated with amillennialism and particularly right. a pessimistic amillennialism. And so they sort of view the spiritual realm as though Jesus only rules over the spiritual realm in a direct sense. He only rules in the spiritual realm. And although the, the civil realm, the temporal realm, is under God's sovereignty, it's kind of under God's sovereignty in this really indirect way. And to me, that just, does, that just doesn't line up with what the scripture seems to say about how the civil government is to operate in an ideal situation. And then, of course, this all has implications, as you've brought up, about what it is we do and how it is we react when the civil government tells us to do something that we know we shouldn't right. do. How is it that we react to that? How is it that the church should react to that? I think, unfortunately, there are some in this more reformed, radical two kingdoms view that would sort of say the church should just shut up and take it. And some people might be going like, well, didn't you guys say that the church should just shut up and take it? That is not at all what we said. No. What we said is that when the when the government is not commanding us to sin or requiring us to sin, that we should just be, it's not that we should do what we're told. We should submit to God by submitting to his ordained rulers right. insofar as they have not committed us or required us to disobey God. And I think that that's a, it's a little bit of a caricature to say that the two kingdoms theology would say your disobedience to God in the civil realm is, is abstracted from the spiritual realm. And so disobedience to God by obeying the civil authority is acceptable. I don't think that they would ever say that. But there are times where some of their rhetoric edges right up to that line. 
And I think this particularly happens in uh, discussions about how do we respond to, I mean, this just happened in our country. How do we respond to the fact that now um, same-sex marriage is the law, literally is the actual law of the land, not just a judicial decision? Some of the two kingdoms theology advocates would say, well, we should just respect and observe those laws. I don't I don't know that I necessarily think that that's the right answer for the church. So I think it's important for the the careful reader to look at this and realize this is similar in some senses to what what Calvin has to say. It's also different in some senses to what Calvin has to say. And it's important for us to recognize that firm barrier, that firm distinction that we need to recognize it maybe is not as as firm and as uh, it's a little bit more permeable, I think, than some of the two kingdoms advocates would would allow for. That's definitely a fair critique. If there's always error in extremes, aren't there? And if the error of the transformational view is that it mistakes engagement or over accentuate engagement as the sole purpose of the church to measure its efficaciousness by whether or not it changes the culture. So it gets preoccupied and almost obsessed with that as its main purpose, the plain thing that's supposed to be doing. Then the same error, but opposite for two kingdoms is to be separatist. It is to fight at every time. It is to say that the bar actually for determining when and where to push against the civil magistrate is so low as to justify anything that we want to do under the grounds of, well, we have a greater and higher spiritual reality. That, of course, is true, but that spiritual reality is over all the laws themselves as well. So we run into this problem where if we just say, and and here's the thing about, I will say the two kingdom view, especially like the, what'd you say, R2K? Yeah. Um, Which, isn't there like a whole famous series of like EA Sports video games, something 2K? I don't know. I think there's like, that's all I hear when I hear the R2K. Anyway, somebody knows and is yelling right now. I can't hear you. I'm so sorry. So (laughs) the thing about this is I always get suspicious when I know that in my own heart and those of my fellow man, that there's going to be a confirmation bias or a great proclivity to want to rebel, to be rebellious. So almost anything that gives us that liberty or gives a sense of righteous rebellion, we want to stand behind. And the two kingdoms view will give that to you if you take it to an extreme degree. So I'm with you. That separation can be very, very dangerous. Yeah. But I love that we're talking about this because I think it helps inform then. This is like the place, the litmus test or the standard that we can go to to try to understand then when there are differences between our convictions in either way, like our convictions and what the civil ministry is promulgating or passing as law. What do we do? And likewise, when the culture is just different than us, what is our obligation to that culture under what God has given us to do as his children. So I think like here we find a great confluence, these two ideas coming together to help us understand how to navigate treachery and treacherous waters on both sides. So I guess this is the moment of truth. We're going to talk a little bit about as we wrap this up, what our personal convictions are on this. You want to go first? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I think one of the strange outcomes of the two kingdoms view is there's this idea that it's it's fine for Christians to pursue secular callings um, and that they remain Christians when they go into those secular callings, but they don't bring anything distinctive to those secular callings because they're Christians. And this, I think for me, this plays out most specifically in 
um, in the civil magistrate role. And so the confessions say it's fine. It's fine. And it's a good thing for Christians to be civil magistrates. Um, and they should rule according to the, the, the righteous right. laws of the Commonwealth that they're, they're, you know, magistrates in my view is that the, the Christian who goes into the civil magistracy magistracy, um, I like it. It's yeah, allowable. Uh, they remain Christian they bring their Christian principles with them and they should legislate according to their Christian convictions. So right. I think I think someone like a Van Drunen would say that Christian magistrate, they they legislate only by what's according to natural law, only what's available to the light of nature. So bringing in their understanding of scripture would not be a legitimate, licit thing for them to do. And I would say that the Christian who goes into the civil magistrate has more access to what God's moral law is. They understand the moral fabric of reality to a deeper level because they have the special revelation, because they have the Holy Spirit. And so that that deeper understanding of the moral law should not only be underlying their legislation that they propose, but it should also be outwardly overlying their legislation. And I think the where the R2K perspective gets gun shy of this is they they want to avoid saying we're imposing Christian laws on the the country. But the reality is that all law, all moral law is Christian law. There's no such exactly. thing there's no such thing as a a valid moral law that is not God's moral law. So it's exactly. a weird false dichotomy. And I also think my own perspective is that the the church has a responsibility to be speaking truth to the government. So referencing this same-sex marriage decision or the abortion controversy, the church has a responsibility because the word of God addresses those things to be addressing the government according to the word of God. When the government, and we see this in Israel, right? I mean, Israel is a little bit different because the king was a theocratic king. But when when the, the government of Israel was not legislating according to God's law, the, the priests and the prophets took them to task and they, they brought that right. forward to them. The priests did not try or the prophets did not try to become the king. They didn't try to usurp the government. Uh, they spoke from the scriptures, from God's revelation or from God's direct revelation in the case of the prophets um, to those le- those magistrates and called them to account for their, for their uh, illegitimate ruling. At the same time, and this is where I think people, I don't think I said anything that would be all that controversial and people would be surprised by. At the same time, I do think that the, the civil magistrate has a role in supporting and undergirding the work of the church. Uh, that is right. going to look different in different contexts. But in, in the United States, I would say it's as straightforward as not passing laws that hinder the work of the gospel. Um, which right. for a long time, that was just the way that the government works. They, they actively tried to get out of the church's way, and that was fine and good, and the gospel went forward. We're now moving into an, an era where I think the, the government is actually actively trying to get in the gospel's way, which is not a good thing, and it's going to bring God's judgment. But I do think, and I think this is, the, this is both the original intent of the Westminster uh, Confession and the divines in the 1640s, 
was that the, the civil magistrate supported and propagated and propped up the church. Uh, and I think that actually the American revision of the Westminster Confession supports that same basic theology that the role of the government is not to be the church. It's not to be the church's axe man. It's not to go out and eliminate all the competition that the church might have in the religious realm, but it is to support the church and to actively actively work towards the growth and the fruitfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's that's what God desires for the world. And the role of the government is to bring about God's desire in the world in the moral sphere. So I, I think that that's, I mean, that's a, a brief summary of my view. I, I think that there could be a lot more discussion on it, but we're obviously going to run short on time for that. What about you? What, what would you say that's the same or different? <laughs> Well, let me add to that just by saying that I think what you've articulated is helpful and people should understand the distinction because there is a very slight, but I would say well-defined nuance between what you just said and transformationalism. You're not at the end of that saying the responsibility of every person is somehow go out and to right. redefine and radicalize the culture in a way that's toward the gospel. That's still different, right? Than again, saying that if you find yourself in the civil magistracy, as we've been prone to say on this podcast, that that opportunity is not compulsion to transformationalism, right? Right. Yeah. And it's, Those, and it's not um, where I think transformationalism would go sideways and where I would disagree with it on this is the, the transformationalists would say that when the Christian goes into government, they're doing so as an outflow of their, their Christian commitment. It's, it's actually right. like a, an outflow of their own personal Christian ministry. It's an individual Christian ministry that they go into the government or they go into the marketplace and that's, that's their Christian ministry where I would say, no, a Christian going into the marketplace or going into the government, they're a Christian who's not going into a Christian ministry. Um, exactly. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian as they go into it. And it doesn't mean, especially that they don't bring their, they don't bring their Christianity with them into that role. Right. Yeah. That's right on. Not, not to mention, and now I'm just going to stir up people right at the hour mark. There, here's a hot take. I, I, maybe, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I'd say nine times out of 10, individual ministry overrated and not yeah. even used remotely correctly. It's, you should just not do that. Yeah. Or if you're inclined to try to establish that in some way, even by verbalizing it, you're, you're probably on the wrong track. Yes. So let me summarize real quickly. I, unfortunately, I don't think, or fortunately, we have a lot to distinguish our views. I'm with everything that you were saying. I'm tracking with you. And the way that I've always understood this as I've tried to process the scriptures on my own is that we have before God responsibilities that he's given us in our sphere of influence and in our proclivities and talents that he's uniquely put together that first happened in the church for the edification of the church. And then from there out, he doesn't make a mistake with where he wants us to go with respect to how our turn of mind works and what we're interested in. And that will lead people into various places of service, including the civil ministry or, you know, police force or all of these things. And when you get there, like you said, this to me is just a matter of telling the truth. And if we're in a place where we know that people everywhere are hungry for the truth and that Christians have the corner on that market, so to speak, especially because the two kingdom view, I think supports this idea that of course, everybody has some like moral inscription that's of a general nature, but of course only gets us like hardly anywhere. But then for the Christian to have the special divine revelation given by God through Jesus Christ, applied in the Holy Spirit in the inner life, working itself out, why wouldn't we then 
if we have the opportunity to make sure that we tell the truth about the way the world actually is. And I think so much of that happens in the civil magistry. I've totally adopted it now. Is that <laughs> what we're saying is, you know, when God, of course, gives us the law or something like that, he's saying, like, don't hurt yourself. Like, this is for our good and it is also for his glory. And so both of those things come together, again, with some sense of harmony and the opportunity is unique to the person that gets to participate in that place where God has put them. Not to mention that I think we really struggle to embrace the transformationist view and not this kind of, I would say, like more balanced to kingdom view that you've talked about, not the radicalized one, but the very balanced one. Yeah. By looking at examples, for instance, of somebody like Daniel in yeah. the Old Testament, who like is taken into a foreign land brought captive. And the whole idea there, if you were to look at that as like a Christian, you'd be like, listen, you know what he needs to do? He needs to fight. Don't embrace the culture. Don't embrace a whole society and function that is trying to eradicate, like in this really clever way, all of who you are and everything that you believe. And what happens? We find that the scripture tells us that God gives Daniel great knowledge in the things that he's studying. And even as he's being indoctrinated. So in other words, God gives him a great ability of wisdom and discernment in the indoctrination. And then of course, once God moves him into that role here, we actually have Daniel doing this very thing, which is speaking up on behalf of the truth. And he's very clear to say where his knowledge and wisdom comes from when he's tested with the dreams, all of it's very clear that he's doing, I think exactly what you said here. And yeah. then he doesn't shy away from the fact that he's proclaiming the gospel. It's the old Testament flavor. We have to hear it with those ears but it is the gospel that God is in control of all things that he's sovereign that he brings up and he tears down. And so when he brings apart, like whether it's Daniel or even like Joseph, like as a person that, you know, enjoys, it works in finance and economics. I appreciate that Joseph through God gets this, you know, this 20% plan. And we just take for granted that here, here that comes, but Joseph is put in this unique place where yeah. he is also promulgating not just the natural law, but he's saying, you know, what's even better than the natural law. It is all of this salvific kingdom. It is the, the true nature of God himself that he reveals to his children. And I think his children do have a responsibility in those places to come forward with that in a way that extends beyond just the natural law. So we're probably saying, I think, a lot of the same things. Yeah. We're kind of turning the idea around quite a bit. But I think at the end of the day, this is like distinctly reform because it's very Luther style where he's just like, listen, Whatever God has given you to do, do it with all your might, glorify yeah. him in it. But it's not like you just smuggle in your Christianity right. into that role. You actually do change that role by your Christian influence, yeah. by all of those things which you bring to it. And that's exactly, I believe, what God intends for us to do. But that's not transformationalism. Right. The, this this is serving in a particular way. Yeah. Yeah. I, the last thing I'll say before we, we wrap it up here is I think... The, the story or the account that Luther is, is attributed, and it's funny that we go to Luther because the Lutheran view is different in a lot of ways than the Reformed view on this right. um, and, and different than our view on this. But the, the sort of like, I think it's probably a pro apocryphal story of like Luther says, like, well, you don't become a Christian shoemaker by just tacking little crosses onto your shoes. <laughs> right, you, right. you also don't become a, a Christian lawmaker by just tacking scripture verses onto your legislation. Right. Right. It, that's sort of like the cheap, the cheap way to smuggle in your Christian influence through the back door, your Christian influence in, in air quotes. You're a Christian lawmaker because you are a Christian who is a lawmaker or you're a Christian police officer because you are a Christian who is a police officer. And, and it's not that you are, and this is goes 
terminologically against what we talked about before. But the idea is that you bring you bring your Christianity and everything about that with you to whatever you're doing. You can't you can't not do that without disobeying God. And so you have to come to whatever task is given to you by God. You bring your Christian, the reality of your Christian life and the reality that you understand what the Bible teaches about a given subject with you to that. And a really interesting study to do on this that I I think would be an interesting book that maybe I'll write someday. Um, I actually think that the book of Esther presents a really compelling model for this, even more than someone like Daniel or, or, um, or J- Joseph, you know, the book of Esther, it, God is is absent in a lot of ways. He, he, there's no real direct reference. There's no there's no specific prayers recorded. You know, it, it very much is just a, a an account of a temporal story without any anything but maybe some subtle head nods to God's providential involvement in it. Yet Mordecai comes to his task as a Jew, obeying God's law, bringing the knowledge of God's law with him. Esther comes to her task as the queen and and the task that sets before her as a Jew, right? She comes with all of that in mind. So I think, I think that's a really good model. And it's, you know, he, she doesn't try to go to Xerxes and say, I'm, I'm coming to you uh, as as a Jew, and so according to God's law, you must do this. She comes to him, and she she uses the laws of the land, which are reflective in various ways of the laws of nature, um, and she uses those laws in accord with the way that she understands God's law, and she brings about the effect. So I think that'd be an interesting study. And and just to to wrap it up, you know, we try to make sure we're saying thank you to the people who support the show. And one of the things that I've noticed happens on a lot of shows that use Patreon or some sort of other sponsor kind of thing is they really only give their head nods to the people who are like new supporters. So I want to go and I I have my list of supporters sorted by who has been contributing to the show the longest, the the longest active donor. So I want to say thank you to Chris and Jim and Dave and Mike and Steven. So those are the five oldest donors, oldest in terms of their contribution to the show. They've been giving to the show longer than anyone else. So thank you so much to to them. Uh, Some of them have contributed sizable funds to our show over the years. Um, We could, we, it's not too much to say that we could not have the show that we have without the support of, of our patrons. So thank you to Chris and Jim and Dave and Mike and Steven for your long-term active support of the show. Thank you, brothers. It's that kind of support and everybody else who joins in with conversation and emails and voicemails that make definitive episodes on two kingdom theology possible. <laughs> yes. You're going to hear lots of, de- of episodes, but You've just heard the definitive one if you've made it this far. It's true. Well, Jesse, we're now crossing the one hour and 10 minute mark, I think. So we better call it a night. So until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood.